You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. I thought we would start with a little exercise this week. Really quickly, I want you all to try to think of a time in the last few days when you said yes or agreed to something that you just didn't want to do or maybe that you didn't have time to do, but you did it anyway. Now I want you to think about why. Did you do it because it needed to get done? Did you do it because you wanted to be a team player or maybe you felt bad about letting someone down? No matter what situation you're thinking about, do you wish that you'd been able to push back to advocate for yourself a little bit more or just say no? We all have our boundaries tested from time to time and I don't think there has ever been a time in history when women's boundaries were tested more than they have been in the last couple of years. In many cases, the companies that we work for have asked us to perform jobs that really should be done by at least three people. And with so many of us working remotely, it's been so easy to start work early in the morning and then still find ourselves working late into the night. And to all of the most efficient workers out there, I see you. I see you. In fact, I am talking directly to you. I am sure that you have noticed that extra work just gets tiled on to the best employees more readily because your bosses know you'll get it done and make it work however you have to do that. But I want to be really clear. This is toxic. 
and it would be bad enough, but at the same time, many of us are having our boundaries tested in our personal lives. We may have roommates or spouses who haven't quite held up their end of the chores or the childcare, or maybe we have friends who always seem to be asking for favors. In all of these situations, our boundaries are being pushed or even completely broken down. And the truth is that some people in our lives have zero boundaries and they are going to try to burst right through every single one of ours, but we can't let them. We have to stay strong. We have to guard our free time. We have to protect our sanity and become the ultimate boundary boss. We have to learn how to say no when we are used to saying yes and put up guardrails when we need them. And the good news is today you're going to learn all about how. Terry Cole is with us. She is a licensed psychotherapist. She's the author of Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. She's also the founder of the Boundary Bootcamp and Crushing Codependency Empowerment Courses. Terry, where have you been all my life? Hi, Jean. I'm right here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write this book. And also, what exactly are boundaries and why do they matter? Well, what inspired me to write the book was my own state of being a boundary disaster and the pain and the complication in my life that came from my young life in my 20s. I didn't know that that's what my problem was, but it was. And then I became a psychotherapist after a career in entertainment. I got into becoming a psychotherapist, and I just saw this as an epidemic amongst my clients where no one knew what healthy boundaries were, that they had a right to them, how to express them, how to talk about them, how to set a limit. So for clarity and for ease, the way that I describe having healthy boundaries means that you, Jean, you yourself know what your preference is, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers are, and you have the ability to communicate them when you so choose. So I have trouble with this. I have talked often on the show about the fact that I have trouble with this and I have tried many different strategies to embrace my own boundaries, to figure out what they are and to respect them myself because I actually think that's the first step. If I don't respect my own boundaries, nobody else is going to respect them for me. In your book, you have three steps to say no with ease. I want to get to that But I also want to talk about what the problem is with saying no. Why do we have such a tough time with that? Well, when you think about the way that we were raised, many of us were really raised to be good girls, to be nice, to be helpful, to be kind. And I like to say, not that I like it, but it's true that we were raised and praised for being self-abandoning codependents. Because we were. So why is it so difficult to say no? Well, many of us were taught that saying no makes you selfish, makes you a problem, makes you a drama queen, makes you a troublemaker, makes you full of yourself. I could keep going. I won't. But I mean, all of these negative myths and assumptions around having good boundaries. 
So I think that the whole, if you say yes all the time, you're nice. Of course, when we look at it logically, we go, well, that isn't true. But it is like we've been indoctrinated to have the disease to please others. And then, of course, you grow up and you start developing as a human being. And pleasing others when it doesn't please you becomes a problem. Because now we're angry. We're bitter. I mean, think about, you know, the the stereotypical idea of like a martyred kind of a mother always guilting her grown children. You don't think that that person set out to become that, do you? Of course not. But you become it. When you are so self-abandoning, then you have an expectation that others should be filling your bucket up because of the sacrifices, quote unquote, you've made. I've done all of this for you. So clearly all super unhealthy, but it would speak to why it's difficult to say no and why we, a lot of times, will say yes when we really want to say no. So is the first step in getting to know, figuring out what your boundaries actually are, and how do you go through that exercise? Well, in the the book, you know, I walk the readers through the process of You know, we all have what I refer to as a downloaded boundary blueprint in your unconscious mind. And this is basically what we learned from our family of origin, culture, country, uh, where you were in the lineup of your siblings. Like there are all of these things. And then you have your nature. You might be an introvert. You might be an extrovert. So, you know, there are all of these things that come together that create your boundary blueprint. So the process to make it easier to say no is you have to understand why is it so friggin' hard to say no? Maybe you had a maternal impactor, as I call them, who was a people pleaser. So then of course you internalized that this is the way to be a good mother, lover, sister, friend, like this is the way to be a good woman, so to speak. And so we have to get all of that information about why, why is this so difficult for me? And I walk you through that. Just really, listeners can right now just visualize what you learned in your family of origin about saying no. You know exactly what you learned and who you learned it from. So we take those things into consideration. So before you want to say no, you have to get clear about what you actually want. And a lot of my clients would be like, I just don't want conflict. I just don't want to be rejected. I just don't want problems. I'm like, hey, that can't be a goal. Like, I understand that. But if that is your driving force, your actual wants, preferences, desires will like never be a factor in your life because it ends up being an empty life. It's a short-term strategy that doesn't work over decades. It really doesn't. You do end up becoming that bitter, martyred, after everything I've done for you type of a person because there's nowhere to go. With that behavior, when we are overly self-sacrificing, being driven by fear, that's not being driven by love. That train has one stop and it's bitter land and that's it because there's nowhere else to go. People don't really know you is another part of the problem. Right? People don't really know you. When we say yes, when we want to say no, we think we're being nice. But when you really put it in the context of, if you're doing that with the closest people in your life, they don't know you. And how can anyone authentically love you if you're giving them corrupted info or data about you? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes 
it makes complete sense. It reminds me an awful lot of how we often talk about people figuring out why they are the way they are with money. That when you think about it, when you think about your money story or your boundary blueprint, right? I mean, it really does come back to that childhood of origin, that home that you grew up in. And it maybe wasn't even things that you were taught, but things that you experienced. It was in the ether. And it's so unbelievably powerful that even in your 40s, in your 50s, in your 60s, it has a hold on you until you deal with it. That is a fact. The same way we talk about boundary blueprints, you have a financial blueprint. You learned making money is super hard or making money is easy or you make money and then you lose it all, but then you make it again. Like there are so many patterns and they do get repeated. And this is really the same thing with boundaries. So for those people who are like, well, how do I say no more easily? Like, how can I do it? I always say the first one is get clear about what you want, but then the second step is to buy time. So I invite listeners right now, you're going to do for 48 hours. You are going to buy time, meaning no auto yes for the next 48 hours, no matter who asks you to do what, if it's something that might be questionable for you, right? If you think you're going to be compelled by the people-pleasing gene or whatever, we buy time. There's a bunch of things you can say, like, let me get back to you on that. I need to check with my partner or my roommate or my sister, whoever. You could also just say, maybe. <laughs> we think we can't, but maybe is just a fine answer for someone. And we can do this in a nice way. We can say, thank you so much for thinking of me. I need to check my calendar, right? You can say, I appreciate you thinking of me. We can do this the same way we do everything else. Setting boundaries and setting limits and prioritizing our own preferences does not have to be done with any caustic aggression. It's completely unnecessary. So once you buy time, you buy 24 hours. I used to have my clients tell someone, oh, I've I've instituted a 24-hour decision-making policy, so I'll let you know tomorrow. And then you'll have people who say, well, I need to know right now. And I always say, well, if you need to know right now, then it will be a no because I don't make any instantaneous decisions, because I find they're not usually the best ones that I make. So, but if you can wait until tomorrow, I can let you know then. So the, the ability to push back a little bit, to know that you have a right to think, to take a moment, to pause, right? You don't, not everyone should have that access to you and the pressure we put on ourselves to like, I need to give them an answer. And then you can go back. And if it's a no, And in the book, I give you a billion and five scripts for every scenario known in history. But one of them is you can just say, thank you for thinking of me, but we're unavailable on that Sunday. And I want you to be mindful if when you're going to say no, you feel like you need to write a dissertation of your reasons and you need to make sure that the person is on board with your no, because they don't need to be. And we feel like we need a good enough reason to say no sometimes. And I just want to say my, I've been a therapist for 25 years. I think sometimes just not wanting to do something is a damn good reason to not do it. I think it's no coincidence. My therapist gave me some words for this at one point, And she said, I'm sorry, but it's just not workable. 
she said, there's so much mystery in that phrase that you're not going to get pushback. I don't trot it out often enough. Why do we feel compelled to give reasons when we say no? Why do we feel, I mean, what we're really talking about here is our time. Look, money is a limited resource, but if you want to earn more of it, you can certainly put your efforts into earning more of it and you can do that. You can't do that with time. You only get 24 hours in a day. Why are we so willing to just give it away? It's external validation. So when we're raised to seek external validation, when we're raised to really want to be liked, to want to be popular, to want people to think of us in a particular way, saying no and prioritizing our own sanity, time, bandwidth, physical well-being, all of those things, when you've been raised to really want to avoid social rejection, like we can do a lot of things that are against our better judgment. Think about it from a primal point of view. Like nobody wants to get excommunicated from the pack because, you know, in olden times, we would die. So there's a lot in there. There is a lot that is baked into the reaction. But what I'm finding and the feedback I'm getting from the book and the testimonials is that there is so much liberation when you learn this, when you learn this skill, when you realize you can be the same you, whether you're an introvert, whether you're an empath, a highly sensitive person, incredibly kind, very dialed into the feelings of others, you can still be you and really have that be your superpower instead of it being your Achilles, because I feel like that's what happens if we don't get a hold of that as a superpower. It ends up weakening us because we're exhausted and just energy going everywhere to every other person, that you can do it and still be you. Like there's no one way to be a boundary boss. In the book, I share literally step by step in every single chapter. It's now back to you. As soon as I talk and teach you something, now it's back to you. So it's a section where you are immediately answering questions right there, not writing it, just in your mind, because it doesn't help you to theoretically understand how it would be really great to have good boundaries. It really only helps you if you can imagine yourself doing it. And I want anyone listening to think of it as if you're, right, you say yes when you want to say no, if your yes cannot be trusted because all of us know our friends who say yes. And then I say to my husband after my friend said yes, I'm like, oh, you know, she said yes, but that means about 50% chance she's going to show. We know you. We see you. Or you come and you're bitter about it. There's like you doing it with begrudging energy, like do me a favor. Don't mind if I don't. Please don't. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Don't blame me. And don't come if you don't want to come. It's really important if your yes can't be trusted. Really, neither can your no. And ultimately, from an emotional standpoint, honestly, you can't be trusted. That's a lot to think about right there. I think it rings incredibly true. It also rings sometimes true of me, which gives me something to think about, right? I mean, I, I do say yes to things that I just, I really want to go sometimes, but I know I'm not going to be able to go. Clearly, I have to work on that. You have something in the book called the Boundary Boss Bill of Rights, which is designed to help out the people pleasers of the world. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure. 
I created the Boundary Boss Bill of Rights and I put it right in the front because there is so much confusion because I've been teaching this for many years. There's so much confusion about what rights do I actually have when it comes to boundaries and really our own sovereignty is what we're talking about. So the first one is you have the right to say no or yes to others without feeling guilty. The second one is you have the right to make mistakes, to course correct, or to change your mind. And I find that one is a really hard one. It was for me when I was younger, still is hard for me. I do it, but it's hard where I'm very much like I said I was going to do it. I'm going to do it no matter what. If you do course correct and you do want to change your mind, what are the words? You can be sorry about it. You can say, hey, Bob, when we first talked about this, I underestimated how much time it was going to take. And I'm really sorry, but I realize I actually don't have the bandwidth to do this right now. So I will have to step out of this project. And I really am sorry. I really thought it was going to be less. Bob might be mad. Bob's probably going to be mad. And he may say, well, this is very disappointing. I trusted you. I'm sorry, Bob. I know you did. I know you're disappointed. And yet, this is still a decision I need to make. So thank you for understanding to the best of your ability. Right. We have to get over the fact that people are going to be mad at us or annoyed at us or disappointed in us, right? That was the word growing up that you just didn't want to hear from your parents if you were a girl like me. Disappointed was the worst. Disappointed was why my parents never gave me a curfew because they knew that all they had to say if I came in too late was that they were disappointed and it was never going to happen again. Yep. So I get it. Before you move on to three, can I come back to two for a second and talk, or to one for a second and talk about guilt? Sure. How, if you were raised with guilt, and, mm -hmm. and I know there is a cultural element to this. I'm Jewish. I was raised with guilt. How do we get rid of the guilt? Well, part of it is you need to understand it. You need to reframe it. You need to question it, like hold it close when you're feeling guilty instead of running away and trying to take an action that will eradicate it or get rid of it, as you said. Realize this is an ingrained response that was taught to you. So the same way you learned it, you can unlearn it, but not by running away from it, by questioning it. When I feel guilty, I go, okay, so why am I feeling this way? Do I believe I did something wrong? Or am I being codependently dialed into the disappointment of the other person, which is actually on their side of the street? It's not my side of the street. They're a separate human being. They're allowed to be disappointed. And that doesn't mean that I did anything wrong. And those two truths can exist simultaneously. So the real answer to your question, Jean, is to not go into action. Like when we have uncomfortable feelings, we just want to do, 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 mm -hmm. especially if you're kind of type A, getting things done. We just want, what is the action I could take to never feel this again? And the thing is, we're changing your relationship to guilt. We are bringing it close and we're looking at it. So we don't just take it at face value. Like, I feel guilty, this means. No, I feel guilty. This means this is what I learned in childhood. 
if I disappointed my parents. But here's the thing. Now is not then, and my boss is not my dad, and I'm not 10. So I have compassion for young little me. I do talk some in the book about the child within stuff, which really is work that before I became a psychotherapist, I thought was like fake. I was like, what even is that? (laughs) Who would talk about that? That's so weird. That's so dumb. Then I became a psychotherapist and I was like, wow, this is so important. And all of us have a child within at certain ages of development. We had certain injuries that continued to plague us in adulthood. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. So that, that was an interesting switch for me when I became a therapist a long time ago to really value the child experience. So that's my two cents on the guilt. But we can't run away. Right, we have to just, the thing we've been running from, we just must turn around and look it right in the face and become radically curious about our responses instead of reacting in this conditioned, habituated way. Let's question. Let's take a minute. Let's allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. We cannot love it, but it ain't going to kill you. And it's valuable looking at why we're feeling the way we are. It's valuable to understand the guilt. Because here's the thing with guilt and the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I think I did something wrong. Shame is like, I am something wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Shame is this like whole character, whole life, whole broken in some way that cannot be repaired. So they're not the same thing. But if you think that guilt says, I think I did something wrong, then you must look and say, did I do something wrong? My mother wanted me to go on the family vacation for two weeks. I am only going on the family vacation for five days. And even that is probably too long, but I'll do it. So my mother is disappointed, but it is my job to protect myself and my relationships because two weeks on a family vacation is protecting no one because we will all be in a brawl by the end or whatever. Like you just, it's it's too long to be with family. That's it. And so we start getting very logical. Like look at it from this objective point of view. You know, Deepak Chopra said to me many years ago, you know, it's like the highest evolution you can come to is becoming the observer of yourself without judgment. So I always teach is like, this is where our answers are of self stop being so mean, stop having this inner critic like Judge Judy living inside your skull, making you wrong about all the things that you're doing, or you shouldn't, you only have one mother, you should do what she wants or whatever. Because that also isn't good for your relationship with your mother. Because we end up resentful. And I think any of us who have done any of this self-help work, we've had to renegotiate, I certainly have in my life, renegotiate my relationship with lots of people, including my mother. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips 
to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey, you guys, it's Jean. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love because I love it. Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business and economics and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, even Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics like whether AI has a sense of humor and whether two CEOs are better than one. If you are curious like me and just looking to better understand the world around you, you will find it on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I am talking with Terry Cole, psychotherapist, author of Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. Okay, number three on the Bill of Rights. Indeed. Number three, you have the right to negotiate for your preferences, desires, and needs. And many of us were taught that negotiating is like gauche. It's not ladylike. It's like rude to negotiate for what you want, but it's not. You have that right. You have the right to express and honor all of your feelings if you so choose, which means you are not required to confess all of your feelings to anyone for any reason. It is your choice. You have the right to voice your opinion, even if others disagree, and you can choose not to. If you don't want to get into it with like Uncle Bob, who's whatever, you you don't have to, you know. You have the right to be treated with respect, consideration, and care. And that really, really starts with treating yourself with respect, consideration, and care. Because when you think about it, you literally are setting the bar, your relationship to yourself, to every other relationship in your life. People look to you. And if you treat yourself like crap, talk about yourself badly, don't sleep when you're tired, overwork, overgive, they're like, great, keep doing all those things for me, you know? Mm -hmm. All right, you have the right to determine who has the privilege of being in your life. And I think a lot of us just feel like, oh, my third cousin wants to come to my bachelorette, I kind of just got a letter. No, you actually don't. Tell Betty she's not invited. Uh, You have a right to communicate your boundaries, limits, and deal breakers. You have the right to prioritize your self-care without feeling selfish. And you have a right to talk true, be seen, and live free. I love it. I love it. I hope that you'll put it on a wall and sign it. Let's take this into the office for a minute. What if your boss is the kind of person who just has no boundaries, who treats their employees like they have no boundaries? How do you respond to that in a healthy way, or is there no healthy way? Well, when you're talking about a power differential, the way that we approach it, the proactive boundary success plan that I would have you use would be different than the way you would approach it if it was a coworker or a subordinate, right? Because the power dynamic actually dictates what is acceptable and allowable, and then you have to decide from there. Because if you're talking about someone being abusive, then you have to decide, perhaps you need to look for a new job. But there are ways to be proactive. So if you have a boss who loves to call you at all hours on the weekend or whatever, you can 
suddenly really take up camping, quote unquote, and be in somewhere that's out of range. Oh yeah, I'm off the grid this weekend. Like knowing, it's almost like you can anticipate the inappropriate intrusion that this boss may have. You can make a simple request to them, right? I teach you how to make a simple request in the book of whatever it is, like a simple request that on Fridays I leave on time because I have to take my kid to baseball, whatever. But with someone who, what you're describing, is someone who potentially is a boundary bully, and we don't know that because a lot of times you have people trampling your boundaries and you haven't said anything and and you haven't alerted them to the fact that there's a problem. And probably half the time, 40% of the time, when you do that, the person will be like, oh, okay, so Friday's. Jeans out at five, so cool. Like, they don't know. And so we make these assumptions and do a lot of projecting. Like, oh, Bob knows he's trampling all over my boundaries. No, maybe Bob has no life and is a total workaholic and kind of just wants you to be in the workaholic boat with him. But if Bob's not paying you to be a workaholic, my feeling is you need to set the boundary and set a limit as to how you will do it. If you're in a company with an HR department, really know the office rules. Even if nobody is like, not everyone is abiding by them, it's important to know if it's a big enough company that has office rules, knowing what they are, knowing when you're supposed to be working and what is your boss asking you to do that is sort of out of those bounds. That makes it easier too. The emails that come early in the morning, late at night from a supervisor, from somebody who has the power Do you shut it off? Do you put up your out of office? Do you say, I'm going to put up my out of office? Do you say, I will start checking email at 8.30 in the morning? I hope that's okay. Or do you not say, I hope that's okay? Because what if they say that's not okay? Well, here's the thing. That's such a good question. I teach people to do a whole proactive boundary success plan, basically, in the office, where we're letting people know how we work best, what our plan is. Let's say you come into your office if people are going back to their office and you have a, a chatty sweet mate who like loves to be like, oh my God, let's talk about what I did last night. Then you have to say, you can use body language to sort of go into your office, turn your body, like don't lean in and ask questions. Sometimes people will understand because we don't always have to say it. But then sometimes you need to say, oh, hey, Betty, you know, my, my most productive time is right now till 10 p.m. So can we pick this up after lunch? That would be great. I want to hear it because maybe you like her. Maybe you do want to hear her story, but you just don't want to hear it now. There are ways to do it that are nice and always letting people know. If you can, again, with a boss, you can say generally, I batch my work because it makes me most efficient. My email time, start at 8.30, go to this time, then I come back at whatever. Absolutely. I don't care unless you are like a heart surgeon or something like you. Nobody needs 24 hours access to you 24 seven. They don't. And knowing that you have a right to have a life and expecting your boss to give you work life balance is incorrect because they're not going to if they're a workaholic. So just stating it and it gets easier and easier. I definitely wouldn't add the if it's okay. You can say, so you know, this is, I have my away message on until 8.30 because I'm doing other things. I'm brainstorming. I'm whatever, whatever. How about none of your business? Maybe I'm sleeping sleeping until (laughs) 8.29 and (laughs) and we're like, hello. 
But I'd say more the more neutral you can be, the energy with which we make an energy request or we give information to people, the energy with which we bring, that is the energy with which they receive. So when you're cool and you've done all of the pre-steps that I give you, visualizing it going well, and what I mean when I say that is that you do the thing you want to do. It doesn't mean your boss is cool with it. It doesn't mean Bob is like, oh, excellent, I love your boundaries. It means you stood up for yourself and you were talking true and you were negotiating for your needs. And listen, people are not always going to acquiesce to what we want and that's life and that's okay. But you saying it is important to you, your self-esteem, your self-worth. You know why? Because how you feel matters. What you want matters. Not being on call 24 hours a day if you're not being paid for that matters. So this is where boundaries can come in, but there's a subtle way to do it. And being proactive is really important. You know who you're dealing with. You mm-hmm. know if your boss is a boundary bully, you know it right now. So think about those things. Think about the way they respond. And then we approach. And I give you in the book a million you know, there, there's lots and lots of scripts to deal with very difficult people, impossible people called boundary destroyers, first timers, mothers-in-law, mother, all the people. How about the friends or relatives who are asking for something big, like money or like an introduction to your company CEO or a valuable contact? How do we push back? How do we say no in a way that protects a relationship that's important to us, but doesn't leave them feeling rejected? Well, here's the thing. How they feel is their side of the street. So I can't speak to that, right? Because you may do it perfectly. And if you don't do what they want, they may still feel rejected. So we're not going to worry about that. How can you do it in a way that honors the way you feel because you love them, but you also are not introducing them to your CEO or whatever? With money, you can just say, hey, I have a no lending policy. It's not personal to you, but this is the way I protect my relationships because I've had bad experiences in the past. I appreciate you understanding. Everyone should have a no lending policy. Literally stop lending money to anybody, especially someone in your family. Just stop it. It's going to go bad. Right. Always. It is. And if you really want to, boundaries are to protect your relationships. People are afraid. They're like blocks. It's mean. I'm rejecting. No. Boundaries are the thing that if you have the courage to do it, they actually protect. They are the bridges to deeper intimacy, not the blocks to deeper intimacy in your relationships. Lending money is such a setup for a complete disaster. Just don't. You don't need to. And people feel very guilty. And obviously you know this because your show's about this, but people feel very guilty. A friend of mine who is an energy expert, when we're talking about, you know, creating abundance. She always has people say this. It's okay for me to have more money than my friends, my family, and the poor. And then she has them like muscle test to see how that is. And everyone's like, oh my God, that's terrible. That's just the worst thing. Am I greedy? Am I terrible? No, but this is definitely, (laughs) that thought is definitely getting in the way of your abundance because it is okay for you to have more money than your family, your friends, and the poor. And you can feel free to give all your money away if that's what you want to do. But you don't have anything to feel guilty for if you've done well and worked hard and have more money than other people. And it also doesn't mean that you should lend them money if you really love them. Because if you were abducted by aliens, you know what, Jean? They'd find another way to get the money. 
Yes, I'm sure. That you disappeared <laughs> off planet Earth, right? You were just gone. They wouldn't starve. <laughs> There's been a uh, a phrase lingering in my head as we've been having this conversation. I actually hate it, and I may get it wrong, but it's when people say, if you want something done, you ask a busy person. And Catherine, our producer, was nibbling around these these lines. She found this meme and wrote it down because it struck her as so profound in light of this conversation. And it said, just because someone is resilient doesn't mean they aren't suffering. And I think those both mean the same thing. What do they mean to you in light of this discussion and in light of boundaries? Well, what I've seen in my practice, and it's been predominantly women who are like, you know, masters of the universe, masters of their universe, making lots of money. They're resilient. They're smart. They're incredibly capable. They're doing it all, but they're doing it all at the expense of themselves. And I, I created this new terminology called high-functioning codependency because my clients didn't identify with being codependent, and neither did I. It seemed, you know, the kind of Melody Beatty, codependent no more, you have to be involved with an addict, you're an enabler type of thing. But what I was seeing in my clients was codependent behavior. So what is that? That's being overly invested in the feeling states, the decisions, the outcomes, the circumstances of the people in your life to the detriment of your internal peace or your physical or financial well-being. That's my definition of it. So with the people, the, going back to Catherine's quote about you're getting it done, but it doesn't mean that you're not suffering. This means boundaries are not in place because overgiving, overfunctioning, doing it all, that comes at a cost. And that is a disordered internal boundary. We don't allow ourselves to rest. We don't say no to others, even though we want to, even though we're exhausted or we worked all week when they want us to help them move or whatever it is, because we think we must be a good friend or we must do the thing. Them having a problem creates internal chaos for us. And we just want the problem solved so we can have some peace. That is high-functioning codependency. So I think that there are a lot of women where nobody would look at us and say, because this was definitely me, certainly in my 20s and into my early 30s, people would be like, she's got it all together. Like, go to her. She's the one. You know, that thing, go to a busy person. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, she'll get it done for you. But I didn't realize that I was really driven by fear. And that other people's messy lives were messing with my internal peace. And I just wanted them, I wanted to fix it. So if they could just get it together, I could rest or I could feel okay. But that's codependency, where I was unclear about what is my side of the street, my responsibilities, things that are appropriate for me to be responsible for, and someone else's side of the street, even if I love them. But I am not, not even my husband, not even my children. I am not responsible for them. I will be there with them. But instead of making suggestions that they're not going to take, which is what all high-functioning codependents do, I will ask them how I can best support them. I will tell them I trust their gut. I will tell them I'm sorry that they're suffering and that I love them and have faith in their ability to figure it out. The bottom line you've said is that communicating these clear, healthy boundaries is hands down the biggest game changer when it comes to building a happy, healthy, self-determined life. So basically, we do this. We follow this prescription. And this conversation has been a prescription, and there is a much more detailed one in the book. We're going to get happier. Yeah. 
And maybe we're going to get uncomfortable before we get happier. But you will feel more satisfied, right? Not being known is really unsatisfying. Being misunderstood is really unsatisfying. Feeling used, even though you're the one volunteering, is really unsatisfying. So as you start to make these changes one step at a time, next right action at a time, and you realize, oh my gosh, the world did not stop spinning on its axis. Amazing. Nobody burst into flames spontaneously because we have all these childhood fears of if I say no, what's going to happen? We start to go, wow, this is fun. I can't tell you how many women in particular have gotten in touch and said, this is like super fun. Like I want to draw boundaries everywhere with everyone. I'm like, please do. They will know who you are. So yes, it is a prescription for being more self-determined, taking responsibility for who you are and what you want in life. And this gives you the tools to be able to do that. Terry Cole, thank you so much. Where can we find more about you, about your work? We will put it all in the show notes, but just tell everybody while we're still on the air. Sure. You can find me. I hang out on Instagram at Terry Cole, which is T-E-R-R-I-C-O-L-E, probably the most. But my website is terrycole.com. I have a podcast I've had for six years, which is called The Terry Cole Show. And I actually created something for your audience on codependency because I thought, now that I've described high-functioning codependency, hopefully you guys will identify more with that because it has nothing to do with being involved with an addict. And that is something that you guys can get recreated. Hold on. It's just, let me find it. Boundaryboss.me forward slash her money. Thank you so much. We will all be doing that. I am sure. I so appreciate you and this conversation. And we will be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. And her money's Catherine Tuggle joins me now for your mailbag. So that was excellent. That was so enlightening. I was hoping that the sound of my head exploding did not distract you during the interview because <laughs> I feel like everything she said was just resonating with me so much. You know, what she said about wanting to avoid conflict cannot be the thing that you want. That can't be Mm -hmm. your driving force or your main desire. There have been so many times when I've wanted to avoid drama and I've put my actual wants on the sidelines in order to find peace and ease. But when you do that, you're not letting people know the real you. You're doing such a disservice to all parties involved. And we all need that wake-up call. I mean, not maybe not all of us, but I definitely did. Yeah. No, I felt like I did too. I saw so much of myself. I heard so much of myself in what she was saying. And I was really struck by the way that she said it. I mean, I I was just thinking, well, if this woman lived in my town, I would go to her for therapy. You know, I mean, she's just so zen and calm and that voice. I mean, I could have listened to her for hours. She knows who she is so well. And I started thinking about how boundaries help shape your own sense of self-identity. You know, when you have walls around the things that you are protecting and the things that you value and the things that you won't compromise on, 
it's so much easier to be fully, wholly, uniquely you. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's also so much easier if you can set up boundaries so that you are not saying yes to the things that you don't want to be doing or don't have time for or that aren't on the list of your priorities. It enables you to really say yes, fully say yes to the things that are meaningful and the people that are meaningful. Yeah, that's so important. The things that you are saying yes to are your most valued things, your top priority things. And I think that's a place that I would love to be able to get to. Yeah, we can work her steps together. I love it. All right, let's take some questions. This question comes to us from a member of our Private Her Money Facebook group. She writes, My boyfriend and I are thinking of moving in together in the next 10 months. I'm thinking of a house since we have a dog and need a backyard and space as I'm remote and he's still working from home. I've never owned a house, so I'll get some of those first-time buyer benefits. He purchased a house with his ex, which he sold and is done with financially. We both want to move to Europe in the next three to five years, so he thinks that buying is not worth it and we might lose money. I'm not thinking of necessarily making money, but I doubt if we would lose it and having additional space and a nice backyard are worth it to me. To find an apartment with everything we need, we'll be paying about $3,000 a month. In my head, I'm seeing that as money that I would just lose, $36,000 every year for a total of $180,000 lost over the course of five years. But I'm the first to admit that I'm not always the smartest with my finances, and I don't know anything about buying a house. I don't need or want my boyfriend in order to secure the mortgage. I'd be charging him rent. Anything you could share on what would make the most sense for me is much appreciated. Thank you. Great, great question. And boy, oh boy, I I think it sounds like such an adventure to move off to Europe in the next three to five years. I wonder where you are thinking about going. If you are operating with a three-year time horizon, I would absolutely not buy. And it's because there are other costs involved in buying a house that you're not thinking about here. There are closing costs, which will eat up about 2% of the transaction. There are moving costs, which can be really expensive. Now, granted, you're gonna move anyway, but there are the costs of fixing up a home to make it the place that you want it to be. And those are things that you probably will not do with a rental apartment. And then there's the fact that during the first few years of a mortgage, most of the money that you pay goes toward interest, not toward principal. And so, especially in those first three to five years, you are just not building a ton of equity. I hear what you're saying about wanting to own something, and I would do some real life planning sit down with your boyfriend and try to map it out. What are the things that are going to have to happen in your life in order to make this move to Europe possible? How likely is it that they will happen? What could stand in the way of them happening? What are you thinking in terms of if you do buy, what you would do with your house at that point? If you are thinking, well, this is just going to be temporary in Europe 
and we are likely to just rent it out for a couple of years and then we'll have it when we come back, that's a different story. But if this move to Europe is going to be longer or it's going to be permanent, I don't think I'd get involved. And the last thing on my mind is the real estate market. And I don't know if the real estate market in your neck of the woods is as crazy as it has been in mine, but prices have been going up because supply has been really short. Mortgage rates are low. Now that again would be a factor in the buying column, but put it aside for a second. And people want more space because of the pandemic, because they've been working remotely. I think that depending on where you live, unless that is absolutely not the case, there is a very decent chance that you could be overpaying for what you're getting. And I don't want to see you step into that scenario, particularly with all of these other factors at play. Thank you so much, Jean. That's great advice. Yeah, three years is really not long enough. And if she thinks it's realistic that they're going to be moving, I would not buy a house and then try and sell it again in a matter of months. Absolutely. I'm still recovering from the move that will not end. So maybe I have a little bit of a uh, chastened view on this right now. But I do think you have to be really careful if you don't think you're going to be there very long. Absolutely. Thank you, Jean. And anyone looking to write into us can do so at mailbag at hermoney.com and I will pick it right up. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, a breakdown on tailoring your clothing. Is it really worth it? And where do you go? You all had so many clothing questions after episode 273, Help! I have nothing to wear with fashion expert Jackie Stafford. At hermoney.com, we took a deep dive into the world of good tailoring. The truth is that hemming, letting out, or taking up our clothing is just not something that we can do ourselves unless we're accomplished seamstresses. The problem is professional tailoring can be very expensive, but it doesn't have to be. If you're looking to have a favorite outfit tailored but don't want to spend a fortune, start by talking to your dry cleaner. If you just want a hem fixed or a slight alteration, a dry cleaner can often do the trick and the cost should be no more than $20. With that said, you should seek the help of a professional tailor if you need to have an investment garment altered, such as a wedding gown or an expensive designer piece. Just make sure you bring the shoes that you plan to wear with the outfit that you wish to alter. That way there are no too short or too long surprises when it's finally time to show off. Yes, prices for dry cleaners and professional tailors will vary according to where you live. In a larger city, you'll pay more than in a small town or a rural area. As I mentioned earlier, a small hem, a button or zipper replacement, mending a split seam should generally cost no more than about 20 bucks. If you're going to the dry cleaner, find out if they'll be making the alterations on site. If not, you could be charged a higher fee to include transportation costs. If that's the case, it might be cost-effective to simply go to that professional tailor. Yelp, City Search, and Google Reviews are great tools for searching for a trustworthy professional to alter your favorite pieces. And when it comes to finding a tailor, it's okay to be 
picky. They should play the same trusted role in your life as a good hairstylist. They'll be tasked with caring for very important aspects of your personal vision of yourself. When you're a regular customer, the tailor will get to know your silhouette and your preferences. No two bodies are the same after all. So having someone who understands your wants, your needs, and your personal vision is crucial. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money and to Terry Cole for teaching us all how to be our own boundary boss and spend more time trusting our instincts. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll talk soon. wish that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.